Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hello and welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. My guest this week is Simon Tacker. Simon is um, the founder of Ancestral Movement and he's one of my favorite thinkers in the movement community. When I first developed Evolve Move Play, he was one of the first guys to reach out to me. His approach with Ancestral Movement is very parallel to a lot of the ideas with Evolve Move Play, but there's also important differences. My background is primarily from parkour and competitive martial arts hard martial arts. Simon's background um, is in capoeira, Asian martial arts, and meditative traditions. He, and he studied those things in India, in Asia, and in Brazil. And then he's gone back to university to build a kind of set of intellectual tools to contextualize all those insights he's gained from those practices. So he's one of the most interesting guys for me to work with. I've had the chance to teach with him twice in in uh, Australia, I highly recommend working with him if you get a chance. He's not a guy who, who works hard to put his name out there, but he does incredible work. And he's very, very insightful. In this particular conversation, I'm pushing him really hard on the why of movement practice. And this is something that's kind of a theme that's going throughout the podcast that I'm putting out right now, particularly in relationship to my podcast with John Bervakey. I pushed Simon a little bit harder than I would most guests because we have such a long-term friendship. And I think it pays off because it produces the grounds by which we can now have a much deeper conversation. Once we really get a clarity there, we get into a very interesting discussion around capoeira, what it does for you as a movement athlete, and what it teaches us about movement in general. So I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this interview. And I'm going to have Simon on again very soon so we can expand on the themes that we we covered in this interview. It was not quite enough time for us to really dig into everything that we wanted to dig into. So this will be a really nice teaser and to get to know Simon. And also, I've interviewed Simon before on episode uh, five. So go back and check that out. These are, he's one of the most important thinkers that's out there. He's not as well known as he should be. So I think you guys are going to really enjoy this. Without further ado, Simon Tacker. So welcome on the podcast, Simon. It's good to have you again. Hi, Rafe. Thank you. Good. So just before uh, we started recording, you were talking about how your one of your primary interests is how do you teach someone the skill of learning? And uh, that was interesting to me because that was actually something I noted about your your students when I went to Australia for the first time. So uh, your old partner, Craig, invited me to Australia in, what was it, 2015, 2015? A while ago. A while ago. Um, and, and so... You know, there's a big kind of, uh, there's a lot of correlations between the type of work that you guys were doing, the type of work that I was doing, but 
you know, you guys didn't have as much of an emphasis on the parkour background. So didn't kind of have some of the higher level, uh, explosive technical skills. And so when I got there and started working with your students, what I noticed was they were, they're pretty novices on some of the parkour practices, but they were extremely good at picking things up. You're exceptionally open and able to kind of self-organize and generate movement. Mm. Took instruction really well and didn't, uh, um, yeah, they're just really easy to work with. So I was curious if you could expand on your ideas around what does it mean to teach someone in a way that is oriented towards learning to learn? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, like, I think it's sort of a combination, or at least the way I the way I go about it is a combination of um, ideas and practices coming from my experience with like more like internally sort of focused practices, um, including meditation, like, like Vipassana style Buddhist meditation, um, and other forms of like, you know, like pranayama breath awareness, um, and then moving into things like Feldenkrais method and Pilates and Tai Chi, where there's like this sort of, in some cases a physiological awareness, a physiological focus, like the breath and the, the changes in heart rate and the changes in like, how do I feel? And in other cases like Feldenkrais, um, for example, or, or Tai Chi and those other ones where that's combined with, um, an anatomical focus, like, like slow, smooth, reversible, um, often repetitive motions going like, how is like, how are my joints positioned and moving through space? How do they feel as they're, as they're doing that? Is there any unnecessary tension that can be released? That sort of thing. So, you know, so they, they, I find help people develop this generalized skill of not just where and how is my body positioned and moving in space, but how does it feel while I'm doing that? So it cultivates a nice form of, of sensitivity. And obviously in a lot of cases it can be, overemphasized at the expense of externally focused practices. And so for me, um, also with a, a long background in, I think, a, you know, I mean, all these different sorts of martial arts and so on, but I think a real um, one of the main ones which has influenced my practice is definitely the, the capoeira, the capoeira Angola, particularly um, because in the capoeira, there's a very much like, um, three-dimensional movement like you're going forwards and backwards and up and down and rotating um and then um in the capoeira angola particularly there's then a um an emphasis on doing all of that in a confined space like a very small space with another person playing extremely in extremely close proximity. So it becomes like less about acrobatics and more about spatial Tetris, like three dimensional human Tetris with another conscious being. Um, and then there's all of these other layers to it, right? It's like with the cup where it's like, it's cooperative, but you're also trying to trick each other, but it has an established vocabulary. So you have clear expectations of like, look for this period, we're not trying to trick each other. And then, Oh, gotcha. And then, in especially, you know, once you 
start to take it more into like the actual art as it is in Brazil, then it's like, yeah, it's fun and it's super musical and rhythmic, but all, and it's friendly and it's a game, but also you will get kicked or headbutted in the face if you're, if you're not a total rookie, you know, if you're, if you're an established player and you're playing, it's like, you, you got to pay attention. Yes. So, um, so the cup where I've found really, really influential in my practice and my teaching, because I felt like it made me better at learning physical skills. It's got that combination of excellent spatial awareness and spatial skills, great coordination because you have to coordinate all of your limbs and your center of mass while going upside down and rotating and not just paying attention to yourself, also paying attention to like your moving around a, an obstacle, which is another human being who's also moving around, who might be attacking you. And it's rhythmic yeah. with music and singing. And you learn to play the instruments. You have to play the instruments. You have to do the songs. And also in Capoeira Angola, you play for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. Games can last for sometimes like, you know, we'd, we'd sometimes play like nonstop one game, like you and your partner yeah. for 20 minutes. And, and then there's this whole you're not just sensing them physically in that time. There's a very strong emotional, uh, sometimes it's a battle, sometimes it's a communication going on through all of that. And so I found that because of all of that, when I would go and practice other martial arts or other physical disciplines, in many cases, I was able to pick them up really like, like, you know, not like, not like the best. I'm not like a, a super gifted, um, athlete but but the you know you can see a movement and get the gist of it pretty quickly yeah with that sort of practice and then especially if you have the yogic aspect as well where it's like you've and and, and often contemporary dance kind of aspect as well of like pick a joint move it in a constrained shape mm. in three dimensions go to the next joint and do that and do that then with that combination of skills there's a lot of physical disciplines which you can pick up fairly quickly there's a lot that you can't which those don't apply to but still a lot of them they, that does work. Well, let me stop you there because I think you, you, you laid out a lot of themes that I think would be really rich for, for us to go into. There's a lot sure. of the stuff that I'm currently interested in and a lot of the stuff that kind of is where your background and mind don't quite mesh. It's like where there's this overlap and then there's these places that I've explored more and you've explored more. And I think those create really interesting tensions in, in conversations. So you mentioned um, meditative practices like mm. Vipassana, um, and pranayama as, mm. as in some sense donating to this ability to learn that you're looking at. You mm. also mentioned um, uh, what I would describe perhaps as embodiment practices or somatic practices like, yep. uh, like, uh, like Feldenkrais. So the, those are two kind of communities or uh, traditions that are overlapping with the, the worlds that I, that I work in, but that I don't have a deep background in. Mm. Um, and, and so then you, you mentioned Capoeira, um, and, and that's another one that, that I think there's just a ton of interesting stuff there. So I, mm. I want to kind of like, <clears throat> just take a second and, and ground the conversation and then we'll mm -hmm. we dig into all those themes. You also yeah, mentioned right. internal versus external practices, which is a huge theme that I really want to dig into. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think it'd be really useful to, to, to kind of create a little framework around the conversation, then try to address these somewhat systematically. So um, I, I just recently had the opportunity to, 
to uh, interview John Verveke, who's a, um, a cognitive psychologist and cognitive scientist from the University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. And he's been very inspirational to me, along with Jordan Peterson, and thinking about a really broad frame about what is movement about. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, Peterson talks about this idea of pursue, pursuing a heroic archetype. Mm-hmm. Um, Verveke talks about the idea of what are you doing to grow your character? Like this is mm-hmm. Aristotle's question. And, and he, he brings, he, you know, what Verveke talks about is this idea of psychotechnologies. If Vipassana is a psychotechnology mm-hmm. that, that allow that if done correctly, the idea is it allows us to have greater insight into reality, to have greater wisdom and um, greater ability to engage in process of self-transformation. Mm-hmm. And through that, through transforming the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you could look at capoeira as a psychotechnology, right? Mm-hmm. Or, a, or a system of psychotechnologies. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the idea that I'm interested in right now, that like as Verveke says, um, we need to create like an ecology of practices. Mm. So then, then the question is, you know, we have this unique opportunity in history where, you know, like you can do capoeira and vipassana. And like traditionally you wouldn't have had access to right. both of those. Those communities right. didn't overlap, but now we can pick and choose from them, but it's really overwhelming. How do we, how do we orient around that? So we need to create some sort of general idea of what the aim is and then start looking at the practice and say, what can they provide towards these? Mm. That's kind of where, where I think it'd be really interesting to dig into this conversation with mm-hmm. you. So, um, Let's start there. What what is the fundamental aim for you in the practices that you're cultivating and mm. you offer to your students? You know, obviously my like my website and you know one of or the whatever my my sort of business name that I'm that I'm known for is is ancestral movement. Um and on the one hand that's a collection of practices and on the other hand, it's like an angle. It's a way of looking at things. And so it's like part of that angle is to explore innate qualities in the human species through movement. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that gets into like all of the sort of traditional, like, well, I guess they've become traditional now, but kinds of things like they, that are, talked about in like the um the natural like method method naturel or however you say it um method method naturel um you know running jumping crawling climbing throwing carrying swimming etc and wrestling um and then as you know and we've talked about in the past like then my other my sort of unique angle or somewhat unique angle is exploring the more ancient movement patterns inherent you know and so primate sort of you know loosely broadly speaking primate types of movement and quadruped types of or mammalian types of movement and then reptilian and so on and so on. And so um, there's this idea of these different, like you could like say that in different environments, we have a, a whole sort of suite of movement abilities inherent in us. Yeah. Um, and very much like, you know, evolved move play, like it's, it's, it's all about that. Right. It's like, they're not just, they're not just movement abilities. They're almost like, like roughhousing, for example, or moving through obstacles or 
um, these different ones, they're almost realms that are like ex biologically expected by a human being coming into the world. And that you could almost say that they're things that like play, right? It's like we're wired for play as a necessary requirement for our brains to develop. Yeah. Properly. Now yeah. I don't really say properly or not properly with things. I really don't like saying that a human being should be this or should be that because we're so broad. But when it comes to something like play, it's like, yes, we are wired to learn through play. Yeah. I mean, I, I like Katie Bowman's word there, nutrition. Mm. Mm. Like play is a nutrient that is necessary for the optimal development of a human being. Right. Movement of certain kinds, it provides the most nourishment. It's like uh, if I think about tree climbing, it's not necessarily that tree climbing is a necessary nutrient but that it is the most dense way of achieving a lot of necessary nutrients. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I, I do think when you talk about roughhousing, that is absolutely a necessary nutrient. Like you need to be touching another, you need touch. Right. You need competition. You need, um, you need pain, right. Mm. To actually occasionally get hurt enough to, to stop and take right. information and, have a model for what it feels like to be a little thing yeah. and, and realize you don't want to hurt somebody else because you know what it feels like. Mm, Those totally. things are really valuable. So um, I don't want to kind of steal your, your, uh, your, your um, microphone here. That's just kind of the thoughts that came up for me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, to go, to go back to the question then it's sort of like there's so many possibilities and so, and with, with what I teach, like the, the ancestral movement idea is often like, it often seems like we want to like, we'll focus on the things that I like to emphasize, which other people don't emphasize. And so that's often when I, when I can, when I get the time to write yeah. and that sort of thing, it's often I'll write about what other people aren't saying. Um, but when I teach, and in my own practice, that's often really not the case. Like I, I spend a lot of time doing a lot of things that a lot of other people are doing because there's so much stuff that's like absolutely fantastic, um, which works really well. And so it's like, look, people seem to thrive when they're given like interesting physical games, interesting physical problem solving. A lot of the things that we practice in my group and in your group, like it's like we're, we're groups of adults and we're creating a space where people have permission to keep playing in an adult way the kinds of movement games that we grew up playing as kids, yeah. climbing trees, wrestling, tumbling on the ground, doing um, all sorts of throwing and catching games with balls or um, like, like playing with like um, with sticks. Like we do a lot of Kali and a screamer mm -hmm. kind of patterns and um, dodging games and, you know, all these different sorts of things. Um, and my idea, my basic framework for the whole thing, is like you can you can make a spatial map and go okay like internal focus meditative and breathing practices to get a clearer and clearer sense of what's happening inside the body how is my blood pressure heart rate breathing patterns deep tension around the organs feelings of heat and cold how are those feelings fluctuating moment to moment in response to my own thoughts 
in response to my movement, in response to what's happening in the outside world. And then the, the body maps, like proprioceptively, can I feel and use and express and play with and sense and communicate with my hands, my wrists, my elbows, my shoulders, like every little part, my rib cage, every part of the spine, every part of the hips and open up the whole body. And so there's a strong rehabilitation element because people will go, look, I've got knee problems or my shoulder doesn't work or this or this or this. So we, we refresh and, and clean the gunk out three dimensionally from every part of the body so that it has the freedom to move expressively, creatively, responsively in space. And then we go out another step into interacting with the space through tumbling, cartwheeling, um, you know, dance type movements or uh, working like playing in trees or playgrounds or those sorts of things. And then we make it interactive. It's like interacting with other humans, whether it's chasing or tagging or contact improvisation or capoeira or, um, or wrestling or um, massage or, or anything like that. So that adds, it's like the, the, the internal focus going into the external focus turns it from just awareness into sensitivity and communication with all of these possible, possible benefits. It's sort of like we're continually working on as adults, like rehabilitating our injuries and getting, working with our sore bits and making our body sort of generally able to do whatever we might want to do yeah. basic thing, basic life, of course, and then anything that interests us. But then once we've got that base covered and we can, we never stop working on that. We keep working on that always. But then once that's covered, I feel like a lot of the more, the other things where I'm saying it trains our sensitivity, our ability to like express and be creative and all the interactive stuff. I feel like it's, it's, um, it's making us like, like our body is what we don't, we don't just, we, we feel the world and we communicate with the world through, through this whole organ and with each other. And so it becomes this thing of like, you know, becoming, becoming more expressive, becoming more communicative and becoming more better able to feel and respond with the whole body is sort of the greater, the greater overarching benefit. I wouldn't necessarily say that to someone on the first day though. You know what I mean? You repeat that being more able to, to feel and respond with the whole body to the constant changes that are happening moment to moment in the world around us, inside us and outside us. It's like, I can feel what's coming from my own thoughts, my own feelings, my own past, my own, whatever. I can feel what's, what's happening outside and, and feel, and I can, respond with my whole self like creatively and flexibly and and powerfully yeah you know yeah it it, it sounds almost like you're saying uh to phrase it in the language that i would use it's um you're creating a more adaptable human being by definitely using, um well this is actually a very nice uh term that i get from Viveki again which i really like he talks about the idea of complexifying right mm -hmm. that um that a process of complexifying is a simultaneous process of integration and, um, and segregation, right? Or so we are, we are, uh, we're, we are making 
things distinct and we are also mm-hmm. recognizing the commonalities. Uh, right. And so we can engage in either process, right? You can, you can notice each little piece of your body mm-hmm. or you can notice how there are, there are systems that move the entire thing. Right? So you can, mm-hmm. you can to, um, to say segment different parts of your torso or you can use a wave that goes through your torso. And mm-hmm. when you have the sophistication to do both, you essentially have a more complex ability to respond to things. Mm. Um, and so that, that uh, what, what you described to me, it, it sounds very much like this ecology of practices that, that Vivek is talking about, right? That's you're, the concept I've been trying to work on exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're, you're majoring right now in eco- eco- ecology and anthropology or ecology and evolutionary biology. Yeah. There we go. So, yeah. um, but, uh, but what I heard was essentially like a meditation practice, mm. a contemplation practice. And there's a distinction that I hadn't really understood until recently, but meditation, mm. contemplation. So those are deep within the body and then mm. just observing outside of the body. Mm. And then there's a practice of, uh, of embodiment, right? What the, the somatics people in the embodiment community are really interested in. What, mm-hmm. what is it like to just be in the body and to change the relationship with being in the body? Mm-hmm. So you can go meditation, contemplation, embodiment, and then there's uh, environmental, right? Environmental connection, mm-hmm. and then interactive connection, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And it's building those, those practices on each of these levels. Right. And... And yeah, I think that that's, uh, that seems fantastically aligned with, with all the things that I'm, I'm interested in studying. The one interesting thing is that, like for me, I find I, I really want to clarify the why, right? Mm. What, what is the value? To, why choose this practice? Mm. What do you get? Like, to, it, it, I, I almost, almost think that these conversations, they, they get down to the, like, the root of philosophy of what the good is. Uh-huh. Um, I was actually talking to Josef Frusich from Fighting Monkey this morning, and nice. he was sort of giving me a hard time about like stop, stop trying to define things so much. Just, just uh-huh. he said, Rafe, go be drunk and run around in the woods. Yeah, um, but I, but I think that there is a that when we that when we make decisions, we're clearly valuing some things, and mm-hmm. if we have clarity about that, it makes it at least much more easy for us to communicate why we why someone else might find value from taking the paths. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm curious if you can, if you, if, if you have a way that you can succinctly express the why Bhutan taking on this particular ecology of practices. Well, like my, my personal motivation, my primary motivation is, fascination honestly um and i don't i definitely try to impart some of that Mm -hmm. um and that's the whole like the the ancestral movement concept package like way of looking at the world is very much about trying to cultivate not just health and the innate abilities in the human species but very much a sense of awe and to try and actually embody and remember more and more moment to moment that we and not just we, but every living creature we see around us come from a, 
four billion year lineage of life and coevolution, and it's like it's completely mind blowing. And so that cultivation of the sense of awe is my personal reason for practice. Mm. But I don't push that. I, I share it with people, but it's like, look, if someone needs, because, you know, often someone might be like really deep in a bunch of somatic practices and it's cool. And I'll say, Hey, like you, you're telling me like, you've got these problems with your knees and, and your back and or, or whatever or something. And it's like, look, like you've got a lot of sensitivity and all of this, but you need to do or not need to, but if you did some basic strength training twice a week for half an hour, which you've never done before, then your, your life will change massively in on, on every level. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point is like you do something on one level and your life will start to change on every level. If it's a big thing, like whole body strength training, you know, or if it's another big thing, like take on a serious, effective relaxation practice as a skill. You know what I mean? You take some of these things or, or coordination and rhythm. If someone's like a, an excellent strength athlete and whatever, and it's like, look, you might not want to go to a dance class, but like take up something that involves rhythmic whole body coordination, like lots of the stuff that, uh, that Yosef um, is teaching. You know, it's like taking rhythm and dance to the fitness world. Yeah. So I want to so, stop you there and interrogate you again, because please. I'm really going to push you on this because I, I think it's, it's, it's just very interesting to me, but you, you said that, you know, something that's a big practice or has big, big potential, like, uh-huh. like coordination, like dance. Um, but we're a relaxation process. Mm. But the problem is that if we don't have like an articulated description of of why it's big it's not obvious to a yogi why strength training is actually a big piece uh-huh. not obvious to a power lifter why a relaxation process is necessarily a big piece mm-hmm. it's not obvious to either of them potentially why a rhythm and coordination practice is a big piece uh-huh. in order for something to be a big piece it implies that there is a value system that we just that you you have adhered to that, that guides you through choosing the things that are the biggest pieces. And this is the fundamental question about you have so many practices that are available to us out there. Uh-huh. How do we choose the ones that are going to be most powerful in cultivating mm. the character that we would want and mm. in, um, and in integrating with each other to create these ecologies of practice that can really synergize and allow. Right. Something. Right. Well, so why I think a lot of, a lot of these, let me say what I'm answers, I feel like they become more apparent as we get older. Yeah. Because as we get older, the accumulation of benefits and problems from the way we've lived our lives up to this point that accumulates and accumulates. And then it's like, oh man, I've got chronic neck tension and, and headaches and, you know, all this stuff. And someone might be, they might've been like a, a lifter, a barbell lifter mm-hmm. and, and a football player. They, maybe they played football through school and then they got a, you know, they finished school and then got a job and had a family. And so they don't play football anymore. So they don't have that, like they're not running around so dynamically, but they're still lifting. So they're super strong. And then 
they're accumulating tension. They've got the stresses of life. They've got, but they're still getting strong and strong. And then bam, they get to like 35 or 45 or whatever. And they go, Oh wow. Tension is a big problem in my life. Yeah. I need to learn like relaxation and like loosening, you know? And so it doesn't have to wait until they're 45 and it's a big problem, but it's like, as you get older, eventually almost everyone gets to a point where they're like, Oh, actually tension is a like muscular tension. And it's link with like unconsciously tensing my body when I do things is like a big problem. And the sooner we start working on that, the better I'm really, I'm really glad that I was drawn to meditation early. And so I got to, because relaxation is a skill. Mm-hmm. it's a skill and often when you start you don't even know how to start or where to start and you you try and it's like it's like taking up parkour as a 45 year old it's like what you want me to jump and climb it's like it's easier to just not do that so you know relaxation is a, is a thing and like strength is another one it's like i got to like you know it was like in my in my 20s like I I was like so riddled with injuries from being like hypermobile and I had really effective relaxation practices, really good, like uh, movement, like sensitivity practices, but I'd totally neglected basic whole body strength. And then it was like lower back problems, knee problems, hip problems. I was like, Oh, and you look up the research and it's like, look, stretching, sure. A little bit of effect, like body awareness. Yeah. A little bit of effect, basic, traditional not fancy basic traditional whole body strength training like i forget what the stats are but hugely injury protective you know absolutely it's like it's like if you're not doing that if you're sedentary then sure like maybe you don't need to be maybe you can get away with not having much whole body strength and whatever Mm -hmm. but if you're an active person doing any sort of movement stuff and you want to keep doing that the rest of your life strength is a thing it's like the lowest hanging fruit and if you're not hitting it and you've never hit it and you start hitting it then it's like you know so it's so my answer to why these are benefits is often if we neglect these things then later on down the line big problems show up Maybe we're already so, uh, some way down, some distance down the line and the problems have started to show up. And so these are the ones which will really help. And then the coordination and rhythm and all of that sort of stuff aspect is like, look, all of these things, cardiovascular fitness, these things, but then coordination, uh, spatial skills, reflexes, rhythm, and so on. There's all of this great research showing how those practices are massively neuroprotective and also neurogenerative they make us grow new brain cells they improve the connectivity of the brain they they you know prevent the development prevent i should i should say uh what's what's the word reduce or or have a, have some protective effect on the development of alzheimer's and dementia and those sorts of things so neuroprotective yeah, yeah. yeah. those are some those are some i think good valid reasons which most yeah. people would would nod their good, heads good valid reasons i, I yeah. Um, I think there's something more that you can name it because mostly that's about avoiding things. Yeah. So again, the basic describing things as, as beneficial in preventing problems. Yeah. Um, Yeah, totally. Well, I think that fundamentally people are actually more motivated by things that create positive things that, that, that moving towards something or at least both are valuable. Yeah. Both are very valuable. It's like, uh, like 
like uh, Jordan Peterson gives an example of a rat, right? You put a rat in a, in a cage and you, um, and you want it to, to see how hard it will pull on a spring to get out of that area. So uh-huh. you, you can waft cat odor in from one side, right? Uh-huh. And that rat's going to try pretty hard to get out. Right? Yeah. But then you could waft in the smell of an estrus female, right? Mm. Uh, that's a, a fertile female who's ready to mate from the other side and these right. work harder and the same yeah. thing if you smelling the asterisk female first and then you put the cat he's still going to work harder yeah so the idea is that you want to put the things that you don't want at mm. your back giving wind mm. to your sails and then you want the things that you do want pulling you forward right and um and so i think that uh framing the value of practices in in, in solely in avoiding things like you should strength train um, because otherwise you're probably going to have a painful back and painful knees when you're 45. Mm. Um, I think that's less powerful than saying you should strength train because yeah, you're going to avoid things, but right. also you're going to get things. You're yeah. going to become a person that you would admire. You're going to be able to do things. You're going to be able to move into the world and have yeah. access to things. For sure. But I think once we get into that, then we're starting to talk about like motivations, like people's basic motivations and, that's going to be, you know, you can make generalizations, but like, you know, so, okay, if someone's a young person and they want to be world champion in jujitsu, for example, yeah. then it's like, yeah, look, okay. Like, obviously you're going to spend like all of your time doing jujitsu and then like, oh, okay. You've got like, you know, like a bit of a, like physical, like deficit that's showing up in like a lack of explosiveness in, your posterior chain or you're repeatedly getting a shoulder injury, then it's like, then you tell that person who wants to be world champion doing like adding this little bit to your practice will help you achieve your goal, you know, but then there's other people whose motivation will be like wanting to feel really good in their body, you know, and so you, you can be like, yeah, like there's, there's all of these ways. It's like, if you want to feel really good in your, in your body, like so relaxed and so at peace, one person, it might be so relaxed and so at peace. And that person becomes really drawn to Vipassana or another person. It might be so like expressive and creative and all of this. And they become more attracted to expressive dance forms or, or capoeira or they become a musician or whatever, you know, so it's like the the positive motivation is is very different for different people. For some for some people, you say if we do these practices, we can feel more and more amazing in our body and exploring the world and all of that. But if they've got chronic neck pain, they don't even believe in that stuff in many cases. They're like, no, no, I want my neck to just not hurt. Yeah, yeah, and that is it's it's both uh it's both uh, putting putting the problems at their back, but also that's their that's their their goal. You know, I want my neck to not hurt so that I can do my work that I love. I'm a I'm a musician. I play the violin, you know. So it's like they're they're sort of and often I think I think you're right. Like working with individuals and with groups, this trying to find people's motivation. Like, why are you even doing this? Like in some of my classes, I'm like, do you, do you guys play a sport or do you have a thing? 
because this all, if you do these practices we're doing, it'll really help you with that. And then, then some people are like, no, I just come to like, I just come to training and it's like, oh, well, I guess you'll, you know, you'll get better. And to try and find that way to convince them that like doing practices that make you strong, grounded, sense, spatially sensitive, aware, and creative and expressive, like they make you a more intelligent human. They make you better at your job, whatever your job is. They make you better at interacting with your family, you know, and that's, that's the goal to impart to people that it like, yeah, movement's great. It makes you a better movement mover, but it makes you better at all these other things as well. Or that's our, our, our job as teachers as well, actually, is to make sure that we're trying to do this in a way that does make people better at, at jazz. Yeah. yeah. At, at, so this is, this is what I'm, I'm, I've been trying to dig at here because, um, so let's go back to the guy with the neck injury for a second. Mm-hmm. His, his neck is injured. You give him a brilliant set of exercises. Three weeks later, he has no neck pain. Mm. How long does he keep, keep doing the exercises? Yeah, it depends again, doesn't it? Because for some people, that's the catalyst. They go, wow, like this stuff works. I can change my life. I can make my body feel different. Holy crap, I didn't realize that it was possible. And then they, you know, get like obsessed. They become like a, a, you know, whatever, like a a cult member. Start like doing all the things all the time. And like, you know, because that's often for people, that is the catalyst where they have a problem that's been bothering them for a while. And then something works and they're like that sense of agency. I have the power to change Mm -hmm. is like, and then they, you know, and I know people who have had that and then they've got obsessed with movement stuff for a while because that was the catalyst. And then five years down the track, they're like, wait a second. I got all obsessed with movement for a while there, but that was just the catalyst that got me into like, wow, I can change and do what I want with my life. And what I want is actually not movement. It's like, I was, I wanted to be a musician that whole time. And yeah. so they keep a bit of a movement practice, but then they go, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so once the neck is healed, mm. the motivational frame of injury mm. disappears. Mm. There's a ghost of it and someone may continue to practice for some period of time, but it's going to get harder and harder to convince themselves mm-hmm. to keep doing these exercises if their neck isn't a problem. Um, right. And a lot of people will just drop at that point. Now, the people you're describing, they're people who, who recognize like a new level of motivational frame. Mm. It's not that the, when the neck hurt, all they needed was to not have the neck hurt. When the neck no longer hurts, the idea, they fought, they, they've fallen in love with the idea that transformation is possible. The yeah. idea that transformation is possible is, is like a new frame. What does mm. it mean to transform oneself? Mm. And this is, I think, at the heart of what I'm trying to get at here, which is how do we get people? Um, well, I guess the, there's two, two ideas here really are very connected. One is um, we all talk about how movement practices or whatever practices are beneficial. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the benefit is very rarely uh, simple and direct, right? Like the value of the, of the possum isn't to be able to sit for 45 minutes, mm. right? The value of doing parkour isn't that you jumped a specific length. Even the, the young kid who wants to become a, a, a jujitsu champion. It's like, you know, Dan John talks about, these are the easiest athletes to work with. They know where they want to go. You just have to help them get there. 
Yeah. Most people don't even know where they have to go. Right. Don't know where they're trying to go. And, yeah. and the thing is that that athlete who wants to become the world champion, um, well, mostly he won't be a, get to be the world champion. Mm. Um, but even if he does, he may find that that wasn't the, real, the thing that actually motivated him in the first place. Uh-huh. It can be extremely disappointing and, 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 uh, and disheartening to mm. have invested you know, four hours a day for 10 years into a practice to achieve one moment and have that moment feel empty. Mm. So one of the key concepts that I've been thinking about for a long time is what makes it sustainable. And then all the people that all the people who do practice, right? Everyone who I meet who has been in love with surfing or jujitsu or whatever for a really long time, I always ask them, like, what, what keeps you coming back to it? And the answer always has to do has to do somehow with the idea that the practice transforms the self. Mm-hmm. And that the self that they become through the practice, they value. Mm. And so then I guess the question that I like to ask is, are we designing our practices to best capture that potential for self-transformation? Mm. And what is it that we're trying to transform to towards? Mm. Right? Like if we, if we know that better, it seems to me that we can make practices that work better and we can articulate those practices for the people who come to be our students in right. a going to make it the most useful, the most, the highest um, conversion to students mm. and the highest compliance as students because they mm. need a map of where they're going and that map is meaningful to them. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I'm not sure if, um, if you remember from, from when you were here, but something that, something that I often include when I teach and I emphasize that it's actually a practice in itself, but is taking the time to visualize or, or feel kinesthetically in our body, you know, as, as, as integrate as many senses as we can, but to project into the future, our future self who has got better at these practices that we're working on or, like, you know, if it was a rehabilitation concept context, then, then like the, you know, able to move freely again, but then, you know, able to move freely and joyfully. And then often like what we'll, what we might do on retreats is like, we've been working through the, the evolutionary movements and we can feel that clearer sense of, of ancestry in the body and like everything's relaxed and powerful and all of the joints and the, the fishy lizard spine, is like fully awake and like whatever. And then we, we project and we, we imagine if everyone like the human species, you go, wow, imagine whole cultures or whole communities where everyone had that degree of embodiment and kids grew up seeing their parents playing and swinging in the trees and wrestling. And like everyone was like embodied and joyful and we project and we create an image an emotionally resonant image which we hold in front of ourselves and we, we feel it and we feel that we're moving towards it, you know? And so that practice, I started sharing it because I realized that it's something that, that I do a lot where I'm like, man, like I'm, I'm working on whatever it is I'm working on. I'm doing a lot of jujitsu at the moment. And it's like, yeah, like I'm not like visualizing myself being the amazing jujitsu master, but I'm constantly 
feeling these movements that I'm learning, watching the, the people at the gym who are better at those things, you know, watching YouTube, like watching like really good people and, and going like, yeah, like I'm feel I want to move more towards that. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to do that. And same with the Vipassana. When I started meditating, it was like, yeah, I could. And I, and you know, I was naturally drawn to meditation. So it was like a bit easier for me than for some, but the sitting and the, the feeling tension dropping away, the feeling, the sensitivity growing, the the calming down of the mental fluctuations and the, the taste of that, that growing, that growing peace and bliss that comes from that. And then projecting that into the future and going, wow, like to get really good at this would be like amazing. Wow. 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 And then when I started teaching, I realized that some of my students weren't doing this. Some of my students, for whatever reason, they would come to practice and they'd do some things, but they weren't necessarily projecting into the future, even a few months. Yeah. And, and then I, I, I was talking about it with a friend and he put me onto this, um, this book, which I really enjoyed at the time. It's called the talent code. Yeah. I'm not sure if you've read it. Have you read it? I haven't read it. It's, it's on my list. I, I'm yeah. aware of some of the arguments in it. I'm really interested. It's, in it. it's great. And you know, I haven't, I haven't, I read it like 10 years ago now and I haven't gone back to like check over the, the research that he mentions. I think Dan, Dan Coyle, I think is the author's name, but he mentions these these case studies where he's like um, in skill acquisition with like, he used the example of like trumpet players and basketballers, I think mm -hmm. um, because he went to all these hot spots that were producing prodigies and he's like, what are they doing differently? What are they doing differently? And one of the things that he brought up, he brought up lots of good things, which I won't talk about all of them, but one of them, which I'm getting at now is that he brought up that if you took say two kids, um, and they were both taking up like this music practice in their, in their summer school or whatever it is you guys call it. And one of them's like, yeah, okay. Doing, doing some trumpet. And it's like, yeah, I'm kind of into trumpet or maybe like, yeah, we're doing basketball for the season and yeah, basketball is kind of fun. But the other one is doing basketball in the same season. And this kid watches NBA all the time. And is like, I want to get really good. I want to get like a scholarship. I want to join the, Chicago Bulls or whatever it is that even if the second kid did less, spent less time practicing than the first kid, that second kid, their skill improvement was much, much better because it was sinking more deeply into the brain yeah. because they were doing this constant practice of projecting into their future self. So I think that's a, and, and the, when I started teaching, I, you know, and I realized that not everyone does that. It was like, wow, wow. No wonder some people will only show up to practice a couple of times a month. And no wonder some people who, even though they are showing up once or once a week or so, they're not making improvements compared to the person who shows up the same amount of time, but who has this, this thing that this, whatever the thing is, this thing that they're working towards you know, and so then for us as teachers, I feel like it's like this, the art, one of the arts of being a teacher and as a therapist, when I use a therapist is not pushing this projection onto someone of what, this is what you should be pushing towards, but trying to somehow dig, help them dig out within themselves. What is it that you often in many cases you used to be pushing towards, but you've forgotten about what is it that you you want to project forwards into the future. 
you know, and we can offer suggestions, this, 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 and the suggestion of the practice of mentally doing that, I think is a super powerful addition to longevity and sustainability in practice. Yeah, there's two, two, two things that come up for me as you talk about that. One is the idea of, um, of the rat again, right? Mm. And that what you're creating is an avatar mm-hmm. that motivates action, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the asterisk the female in the, in the room next door. That idea of who you could become is that thing that is pulling you forward. Mm. Um, and then the other one is this idea that, uh, of, of relevance, right? Mm-hmm how salient can you make your practice? How much can you make yep. it meaningful to you as you're engaging yep. it? Because the yep. more that you see meaning in it, the more that you see relevance in it, the deeper it's going to sort of penetrate the brain and the more it's exactly. going to allow reorganization um, yep. to kind of embody those practices and make them effective. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the real key with the future projection of like, and that's why it's like, you can't say to someone, imagine yourself being like good at this. If they don't care about it, it's like, they've got to find that, that projection, which is as emotionally powerful as it can be for them. Yeah. Cause that's what, that's, what's going to trigger those, those brain changes. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, that's that that's very much along the lines of all this stuff that I'm researching on self-organization in movement mm-hmm. practice, right? And mm-hmm. the same thing, self-organization around motivation and the, the role of the teacher isn't so much to give the correct movement or to give the correct ideal as it is to help the student reveal to themselves what their correct movement pattern is, what their optimal ideal to be aimed at is. Right. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I wanted to loop back to the beginning um, oh. and talk a little bit about capoeira. Right. Because I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of example of, of this idea of learning to learn and of, of how we adopt and utilize these kind of uh, technologies of mind or psychotechnologies. You, you said that you felt like because Capoeira is this kind of, especially the Angola game is this sort of human Tetris mm-hmm. where you're, oriented and that it has the element of rhythm and coordination to music it has the element of competition and it has the element of cooperation you felt like it gave you a platform to learn um, more powerfully as you walked into other arts Mm. i found that really interesting because um when i first started really thinking a lot about movement i was a gymnastics coach and i um i was training martial arts or had trained martial arts and i wanted to get back into martial arts and then I started training parkour and I was at a, a gymnastics regional Congress and there was a Cirque du Soleil scout. Mm. And at the same time I was training CrossFit a little bit and I was very interested in kind of the ideas that were coming out of CrossFit. And one thing that CrossFit said was gymnasts learn sports faster than other athletes. Mm. Um, the idea being that kind of, I'm actually not sure what their idea was, but somehow <laughs> you're supposed to do gymnastic stuff. Um, my my perception of that was the reason that gymnasts learn sports faster was because they're constantly dealing with this complexification of movement. They were mm-hmm. learning the skill of learning, seemingly. Yeah, okay. So I talked to the Cirque du Soleil coach, and he said, yeah, gymnasts learn pretty quickly, free runners learn pretty quickly, but absolutely the fastest people to deal with any new challenge in Cirque because they're always coming up with new little problems 
hanging out in Cirque and they've got all these mm. different athletes from different backgrounds. Mm. So the capoeiristas are always the fastest. Mm. They said it was interesting too because they never, they never maintain their interest in anything other than capoeira very long. Huh. So when all the, all the Cirque players are messing around with some new challenge, some of the capoeiristas will come over and they'll be the first to solve it and then they'll go back and get in the hoda again because that's what they're, uh -huh. they live for. Uh -huh. and, and that stuck in my head for a long time. And what I came up with was exactly the sort of the things that you mentioned. Mm. It's free form, it's complexity, but it's reactive complexity rather than volitional complexity. Yeah. And it has the element of cooperation. So you can yeah. dance with somebody, competition, it donates to fighting or mm -hmm. any sort of team sport um, and music. Yep. And all those things kind of donate to these different practices that you yeah. Yeah, but what's interesting about capoeira is that it has a, in my experience of, of working with teachers of capoeira, it has a extremely minimally developed sort of pedagogical system, or at least it looks that way from the outside. Mm -hmm. um, it, it seems to be relying largely on self-organization and implicit learning, um, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's dangerous because they ask people to do things that are totally unprepared for because they don't know when someone, they don't right. have a theory of how to recognize when somebody is prepared for it. Yeah. So it seems to me that athletes who make it in Capua do very, very well. But a lot of people get kind of get, get cul-de-sacked in the entry point because mm. they accumulate injuries or because they get stuck and they don't have, they don't have tools to, to make it past those places. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, there's something in there about, I think there's a lot of insight by looking at something like Capoeira about how we can utilize implicit learning, how we can use a system that has this broad set of cultivations, mm. but also where it's necessary to bring in explicit learning and systematic stuff to support that process. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so Capoeira I find is, is really interesting that like it, like even looked at on its own terms. So not, not going like, how would like capoeira make you better at anything else? But just, just the, the art of capoeira is like, because the systematic teaching is a very new development in the art. Yeah. So now we have capoeira schools and you'll learn, you know, you'll have people standing in rows doing Meluju French and Armada and Habuja Haya and Jinga and like, mirroring each other's movements and doing it all together, standing in lines, facing the mirror, that sort of thing. And nowadays you'll have this in, you know, like when I was learning capoeira back in, back in the early two thousands and stuff, like you'll have this very common in a lot of schools, very common experience of people who they might've been learning the movements for a year, yeah, but they haven't yet learned how to play the game. And they're terrified of the game because they're terrified of in the game doing the movements wrong. And that's why you get this often. And this is why I, I love there are there's amazing capoeira in all of the genres of capoeira, but I love the capoeira Angola because of the close proximity, because in, in a lot of the other styles of capoeira, you get these thing of people, two people standing in front of each other doing their movements. And it's like, I need you to get out of my way so that I can do my movement. 
And then it's like, oh, cool, you did a movement, I'll do a movement. And then someone else will be like, oh, that was a cool movement, I'll try and do it. And it becomes a, a breakdance battle, basically. Yeah. And to me, that's much less interesting than the Capoeira Angola, which is this game of people actually responding spatially to the movement opportunities being created and restricted by the movements of their partner in a confined space, which to me is much more interesting because it's reactive and spontaneous. And so now when I teach, like, you know, I haven't been teaching strictly capoeira for many years now, but I still, we bring in a lot of the elements of capoeira in, in the classes and retreats and things that I teach. And so now I start with the game. I don't start with the movements. I start with the context of the game itself, create a confined space and start to move. And then from that, so right from the very start, they have confidence in the game. And then we gradually add one movement concept at a time (laughs) to that game. And you'll have people in their first session playing an amazing game of it's not strictly capoeira, but it's close to it. And then if we wanted, if I wanted to take that person and, and bring in the Birimbao and bring in the, the traditional movements within a week, they would be playing equivalent to people who, when I was learning capoeira would have been like two or three years in. Yeah. You know? I mean, this um, is exactly what I've discovered with the rough and housing yeah. teaching that we do. It's, it's, it's totally. this whole idea of, of, of task consuming learning. It's what we do with parkour too. Yeah. So I don't teach people to do a step vault. Mm. right or a con vault initially and give them a set of obstacles to go over yeah have them play going over the obstacles and and as they self-organize i point out patterns that they're doing mm. and then start talking about principles and, and things that, that they were trying to achieve and mm. then eventually i talk I, I refine the patterns and give them the specific tools and techniques um, yeah. and and kind of uh feed that into the conceptualization of what they're trying to achieve in the first place yeah uh, and that's tr- proven to be so much more effective yeah um yeah, I, yeah this is something that's frustrating to me right now i've, I've just started like as you are i'm tr- training jujitsu um uh-huh. very jiu-jitsu. i want to get back into capoeira training as well i go in and um and there's a lot of essentially like 16 steps to do a technical base stand-up right yeah yeah 16 steps to t- set up an arm bar from this position it's like yeah it just doesn't adapt well to that um, but right. you could easily just put people in a position and say, okay, fight for the arm bar, mm. fight to get out of the yeah. arm bar. Now everybody's yeah, yeah. do it. At and I think, I think that's that, that form of like, I was going to mention actually that I think, you know, that this new systematic, I'm not trying to say that I'm teaching capoeira in a new way. I'm actually trying to emphasize that. I think that primarily like, emphasizing the game is actually where the art of capoeira comes from. Yeah. And that the new systematization of like, here's how you do the movement, here's how you do the movement, and spending a whole year or more on that before you get properly into the game. I think that's the new development and it's backwards. And I think that Brazilian jiu-jitsu is this wonderful, 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 like judo is another. Judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu are these amazing examples of arts that had been stagnating mm-hmm. for centuries which then got revived by play and so judo still has the 
you know, judo still has some of the traditional elements of like focusing mostly on standing. But then when I first started to really see Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I was like, man, like you can feel the Brazilianness in it. It's, it's like, it's, it's a playful art. And then you look at what's happened over the last 20 years where it's like the gene pool within Brazilian jiu-jitsu has expanded. And now there are like probably millions of people around the world and young people and sure in class, maybe there's a, this emphasis on being super technical, but then in virtually every Brazilian jiu-jitsu school that I know, half of the class at least is free rolling. And so you've got all of these people playing, 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 and maybe we can, maybe we can nitpick and go, look a bit more of a playful, a bit more of a playful focus, like what you see in generally higher ranked people is what's bringing that creation, but making the game evolve so fast, Mm -hmm. you know, so teaching newbies, especially highly technical rote learned techniques is probably not the fastest way to help them develop skill in the game, but it's the fact that it is a game-based art itself that's making it evolve, that's making it such a rich learning environment, if you know what I mean. Yeah. That emphasis on play. Yeah, precisely. I mean, so that I think that they systemize the wrong things. Mm. And I think this is a, an across-the-board problem of physical education. Mm. And, I, and I actually think that it starts with, um, I, I, I think this is actually at the heart of like the whole problem that we're looking at with the meaning crisis and everything else, which is it's, it's the, it's the mechanical enlightenment worldview applied to the body because, because you started to look at movements as like components in a machine that had to be assembled correctly in order for the machine to operate correctly. Yeah. 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 And and fundamentally movement is not a, is not, is not a mechanical process. It's an ecological process. Uh So we need to talk about, we need to build systems that facilitate effective implicit learning, mm. effective ecological learning. Mm. Um, and and mm. we need to do that actually in our movement practices, but in our general self-cultivation practices, our wisdom practices. Mm. And I, I, uh, unfortunately I have to go cause I have a, <laughs> A, um, a meeting with a, another friend today, um, but I feel like literally that we're halfway through this conversation or less. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I'd like to um, to get you on the podcast again really soon because I think that we need to talk. I would really love to continue this conversation and talk about uh, the role of meditative and contemplative practices and how those mm-hmm. donate to movement practices, how all of this donates to um, to self cultivation in a broader sense. And um, like some of the stuff we're talking about, about sumo and these kind mm-hmm. of uh, uh, playful practices and, and the origins of how it became so mechanicized, right? Uh-huh. Mechanized. That's the word. Sure. So um, any last words for people today? Gee, okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry well, yeah, something I, something I wanted to mention something I wanted to mention earlier just because we've been talking about all this stuff is that, um, you know, in conversations with various friends, we're talking about neuroplasticity and coordination and all of these movements and, you know, neuroprotective effects of movement and whatever. And then I can't remember which friend put me onto it, but like we were talking about, about Kali, like the Filipino um, 
martial art, Kali, Eskrima, Arnis, whatever you want to call it, which has all of these amazing hand drills and partner drills with stepping. And it's very, you can feel your brain firing when you do it. And it's like, yeah, I was like, we we're talking about how great that was. And I was like, man, I'd love to see some studies into Kali and neuroplasticity. And um, this friend who I was talking to was like, oh, there's this guy, um, Paul McCarthy, who's got a, a, a whole thing called cognitive Kali. And he works at UCLA and he's working with neuroscientists and all of this. And so I checked it out and it's like, awesome. It's like exactly the kind of stuff from a science perspective that, that I've been wanting to see. I would love to see someone doing cognitive capoeira, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. because he's working with neuroscientists, they're doing stuff and they're using Kali, this traditional Filipino martial art, not like he's a martial artist. He trains with, with Danny Nasanto, yeah. but they're teaching it as for its cognitive benefits and researching all of this, like crossing the midline coordination drills, switching between patterns and like using all of the terminology, cognitive, cognitive flexibility, like, you know, how it trains working memory, all of these, all of these things. So I think you should check it out. Cognitive Kali, okay. they're doing great research and it's like, and he's got, Paul has this great thing where he's like, he's, he's, he's made up this word. He's like, look, you take one of these arts or one of these simple practices and you cognitivize it by, adding working out how to add the right amount of cognitive load yeah yeah to make it and anyway i just wanted to mention that because it's cool and it's something i've been looking into the last week and i think it could give us some some more material to talk about next time um, we got yeah. <laughs> we got enough material my friend um, yeah, we do. <laughs> uh so ancestralmovement.com if folks are looking for you uh, indeed yeah the ancestral retreat for what's this uh spring or no fall for you Autumn, yeah, yeah. Autumn retreat. Yeah, autumn retreat's happening in a couple of weeks. I'm making my first trip to Europe in June and July. I'm doing a retreat uh, in Italy called Born to Play um, with a guy called Bruno Caverna, who's, who's a longtime Facebook friend who's organizing it and a bunch of other great teachers there. And I'm teaching a, a focused ancestral movement workshop in Cologne in, oh. uh, at the end of June, yeah. Cool. Um, so. Yeah, I'm excited about that. To uh, to Bruno for me and Karsten. Uh -huh. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I wish I could be there with you guys. I'm sure you'll have a Yeah, that'd be fun, man. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we'll chat again soon. Um, let's, let's definitely get a, something organized real soon. Um, and uh, I got to go, so. All right. Nice one, Rafe. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes if you can. Finally, as we mentioned before the show, this is a listener-supported podcast, and if you want to have the most regular content, have the best guests on, and give you guys the best quality of audio and video, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Thank you very much, and I look forward to sharing more with you guys soon.